Are You comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host, Catherine Schmidt, is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, diving deep into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Katherine Schmidt, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is local stream stewardship. Everywhere a road and a stream intersect represents a vulnerability for communities, a potential washout during the next big rainstorm that can be costly to repair. Undersized and malfunctioning drainage structures are also a problem for fish, especially this time of year when alewives, blueback herring, smelt, and salmon are migrating between rivers and the ocean. Fish are also blocked by dams and other barriers. But communities are taking action to fix road crossings, install fish ladders, and learn more about the fish and wildlife inhabiting their local streams. Our guests today represent a diverse range of how local communities are stewarding their local streams. We have Ruth Feldman, Program Director with Island Readers and Writers. Hi, thanks for having me. Siona Albrick, Senior Project Manager with Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Hi, thanks for having me. And Jeremy Bell, Aquatic Habitat Restoration Manager with the Nature Conservancy. Hi, it's great to be here. We'll be calling Barbara Cherry, a wildlife biologist with Maine Audubon, in just a few minutes. I'd like to start today by recognizing that communities around the globe just celebrated something called World Fish Migration Day, creating awareness of migratory fish and open rivers. There were, I think, 450 events around the world, including many in Maine, where we have 12 native species of migratory or sea run fish. And I'm wondering if all of you participated and, and in what way. Um, Jeremy, I think the Nature Conservancy played a leading role in Maine and the whole U.S., or? Yeah, actually, the Nature Conservancy played a global role in this. Um, my colleague who works here in Maine, Josh Royt, uh, co-founded World Fish Migration Day with a guy named Herman Vonnegut, who's from the Netherlands. Uh, they came up with the idea to start the event globally. The first one was in 2014, and then, of course, this year was the second event in 2016. And was there a lot of growth between the two years? It's every other year, correct? It's every other year. Uh, the first year, I think there were about 150 events, which is pretty impressive for the, for the first year. And then, of course, 450 events. Uh, around the world. Um, the, uh, there were 25 events in Maine, which was fantastic. So we represented the U.S. really well. 
did you attend any? I did. I did the uh, my hometown event um, in Yarmouth, celebrate our Royal River, which was put on by the First Parish Church of Yarmouth, and it was really fun. I got to meet my neighbors and talk fish with people, which I always love to do. Great. And Ruth, I think Island Readers and Writers has been involved in a whole season-long celebration of alewives. Yes, we were. We were wrapping up um, what we call alewife small fish, big impact. Uh, And we've been working with uh, other local partner organizations. And when we together were looking at what would be sort of a natural timeline, we do a lot of work in schools. We were looking at the alewife run and when to time it well, we just naturally looked at World Fish Migration Day. So there were a bunch of partnering organizations in Down East. So last Saturday, there were happenings everywhere from Machias up to Truscott as part of our kind of big finale day. And did you personally attend? I did. I was in Truscott. We were, um, we used, so there was the Smolt Bolt Run um at uh, at East Machias and then there was uh, partnering organiza- organizations doing paddles um, nature walks and then we had just everything alewife related from family fun to author book signing um, at Cobbs Cook Community Learning Center was our home base for Saturday's event great. it's great and Siona did Maine Coast Heritage Trust participate in World Fish Migration Day Um, We did in a couple ways. So our organization was involved down east with what Ruth was just mentioning. Um, And then I was involved in um, the sort of opening celebration of uh, Restored Fishway in Surrey, um, which wasn't necessarily billed as a World Fish Migration Day event, but it was on that day and was celebrating fish. And I think it was on, there was a global map with all of the main events on there. Ruth, I'm I'm interested to learn how an organization, you're not from a conservation organization or even a fish-based organization, and if you could share a little bit why an organization that's focused on reading and writing um, chose to focus on migratory fish. Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, as you said, we're, we're focused on books. We say that we're book-based um, in the programming that we do, and for the most part, Our age range is K to 8, although we also do programming that's intergenerational and community-wide. So for us, it was based on two recent books. Um, So both, all all local authors and illustrators, um, the Swimming Home book um, is uh, Susan Shetterly's book and focuses very specifically on an alewife and how that alewife um, is, is or is not able to get upstream. Uh, that was illustrated by Rebecca Ray, also local. Um, and she, together with Kim Ridley, a local author, did uh, a s- book called um, The Secret uh, Bay. Sorry, their first book was Secret Pool. And this one uh, followed on, and it was really focusing on estuaries, the whole food web, and obviously including the alewife as part of that whole estuary food web. So that was the basis um, for us that got us thinking about this much larger possibility of a project. So what kinds of activities did, did schools and people do? Uh, we worked with six schools uh, in Down East in Washington County. Um, all of those schools had sort of a menu. Um, our typical is to bring the author and do writing workshops. 
And then also with the illustrator, um, so they each got an opportunity to work with Kim Ridley one-on-one. And obviously, teacher work supplements that. So it was projects that they got involved in both before and after Kim, and then as well as a visit with the illustrator. And they did some incredible artwork with Rebecca part of because this was a larger than usual project for us the other options were to work with um uh downey salmon federation um and so kyle winslow from um east machias would visit in the schools and do something that he calls a believe it's a hooks and ladders but sort of a simulation of a fish run as well as Maine Sea Grant, Chris Bartlett would also then take them and do an actual river trip and field trip. So there was a lot. I realize that it's just ending and this event was just last week, but a little bit of reflection on was it a success? Um, You know, how did it, how did the topic of migratory fish resonate with your audiences? Uh, So I think the answer to that would be success on a on a few different levels. Um, you know, clearly, um, well, let me talk large to small. Um, I think community-wide, as part of this project, we also um, worked with libraries. We had a panel presentation, which was fantastic, at Skudik. Um, so at the adult and larger community level, it kind of brought different perspectives and different people together, which was great to see and hear. Um, And then in terms of the kids, you know, that's for us, that's always the best piece of it. And I think those real aha moments came when you saw kids making connections. So whether they were able to talk about it because their parents or they themselves do lobstering and having those conversations about why they should even care about fish restoration, uh, fishways, um, and connecting the dots. You know, oh, if even with, um, you know, seeing pre-K and kindergartners able to not just rattle off, you know, phytoplankton and zooplankton, but able to draw them and understand that they're important because the ospreys are important, because the fish are important. And, oh, by the way, that relates to us as humans. And, um, you know, really seeing them become, as actually Chris, I'm going to borrow his words from Maine Sea Grant said, you know, he's been trying to do this work with kids for a few years. But when he started mentioning alewives, uh, you know, I wouldn't say blank stares, but it was harder to get people interested. Uh, And he said that one of the things he saw in this project was that kids were not only kind of... um, engaged and interested but informed so they they really um did i you know and that says a lot to the teachers as well so shout out to the teachers who did some incredible incredible food webs with them and just projects to help them connect the dots and make understand the relationship sounds like an ambitious um but successful project i think in a similar vein siona you're you work for a land trust, and why it's kind of surprising that you would be here in a coastal conversation about fish passage and stream stewardship, and maybe you can just share a little bit of perspective on how and why Maine Coast Heritage Trust is getting involved in this work. 
Yeah, glad to. And I, I think it's also worth mention of local land trusts, um, of which there are about 90 in Maine. Um, you know, it comes down to what Ruth was just saying, connecting the dots. And land trusts, along with sort of a lot of us in Maine, are um, connecting those dots a little better now than we have been in the past. You know, we focused in a long t- for a long time on land conservation. So um, limitation of change, especially in er- uh, areas important for habitat. And I think we've come to better understand the need to do more than that, be a little more active in the idea of sort of restoration of habitat. There have been some changes to habitat over time. Um, and we have skill sets that make sense to bring to the table. Um, you know, like we what? work with private landowners. We know um, pretty well how to do landowner relations. Um, we know how to do grant writing, and uh, money's important for a lot of things. Um, and we uh, have access to tools in that, you know, there's state funding, there's federal funding. We're good at connecting with partners and making things happen. And I think one of the neat things about these alewife and fishway restoration projects are. Um, the number of partners that need to come together to make each one happen. And I think land trusts, very generally, are often good at working together with partners. So we bring those things to the table and um, have always been very interested in habitat. So that's, I think, why a number of land trusts, including ours, are really starting to look at some more active restoration efforts. And do you find that their people are coming to you or that you're having to be more proactive about locating those partners? Yeah, good question. It's both ways. So in a few places around the state, um, we're proactively starting to work with partners and take a look at um, the needs out there and and which ones make sense for us to put some effort towards. Um, And often partners are coming together and coming to us um, needing some of the skill sets that I just mentioned. That's great. And Jeremy, you've been doing a lot of this work on the ground. I mean, your title is a restoration specialist, right? So maybe you can share a little bit about what is it like to spend so much time and funding on fish passage and habitat restoration work? Sure. Well, uh, habitat restoration and fish passage is, first of all, super fun. It's great to do in the field. It's great to see a project get com- get completed. So I love that aspect of it. Um, and what I think the Nature Conservancy brings is uh, the science behind it. We're a global organization, and we have a lot of scientists on our staff that that work on these issues at at the local scale, like our main chapter where I where I work, as well as uh, at the North America level and the global level. Um, and yeah, we've been involved in fish passage restoration since the iconic uh, dam removals on the Penobscot River. Um, you know, we are taking those all those rivers and streams that are now open and have those first barriers to to the sea now that the dams are gone on the Penobscot, we're trying to open up those uh, those systems as well and um, open up as much fish habitat as possible. I think uh, we're going to talk to Barbara Cherry, who's from Maine Audubon, and she's on the phone from her office in southern Maine, and they've been working with the Nature Conservancy and other partners to um, do a lot of training workshops to help communities understand their infrastructure and maybe identify where restoration might be appropriate. Hi, Barbara. 
Hi, how are you? Good, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, thank you. I wonder if you could share with us a little bit of some of the, the trainings that you have been doing statewide and a lot right in the Penobscot watershed close to WERU studios. And what are some of the basic principles that you're trying to convey in this work? Sure, yes. Well, we've been doing uh, what we call Stream Smart trainings around the state for the last five or so years. Um, it's been a great partnership project with a lot of um, different agencies around the state. We've hosted over 30 workshops from Caribou to Wells, um, really focused on um, initially everybody who's responsible for a road stream crossing. So from uh, town managers, road commissioners, uh, public works departments, um, contractors, consultants, engineers, um, anybody, uh, land trust, anybody with that, with that responsibility. Um, and they've been really great, really focused on um, helping folks uh, learn what they need to do to um, both um, protect the infrastructure but also connect fish and wildlife habitat. So StreamSmart stream crossings that we uh, teach about at these workshops are about connecting fish and wildlife habitat while we protect roads and public safety. And that's, that's really the core uh, information. And, they, and they, when they're installed, um, they help us prepare for those large and frequent storm events that have been washing out roads around the state and the Northeast. Um, the real core principle of StreamSmart, um, it's not prescriptive, it's really goal-oriented. And the goal is to let the stream act like a stream, let it act naturally um, when it goes under a road. Instead of, instead of the road acting like a dam with a hole in it, um, that, that it's um, making the road invisible to the stream. Uh, and that's what the principles, the basic principles we're trying to convey, both from the, you know, how to do it um, and why to do it point of view. Um, and we are also hosting some um, public workshops in the Penobscot River watershed region. We've held a couple in Orland and Holden, uh, Holden so far, and we have a few more um, that are in the works and will be um, on our website in the next few weeks um, when we have dates and locations for that. And I'd love to invite um, any of the listeners to attend those. And what's that website where people can find out? Mm -hmm. They can go to streamsmartmain.org and look under the training workshop tabs um, for upcoming workshops. I'm going to ask you this because I've asked um, some of our other guests today. I think some of our listeners might be thinking, Maine Audubon, I thought they were about birds. Why are you working on streams and culverts and, um, you know, working with contractors and Department of Transportation on, on roads and stream crossings? Yeah, that is something that comes up. Um, and really, Maine Audubon is about wildlife and wildlife habitat. That's really our focus, not just birds, but all of Maine's wildlife and wildlife habitat and how do we conserve that and make sure we have that for future generations um, for all of us that, that love being here in Maine and, and what it has to offer. So the ability for fish and wildlife to move on the landscape is really critical for, for their long-term survival. They're really um, just like we are. You know, we have to move around the landscape to go to work and school and the grocery store or visit our family. And wildlife really need to move for a lot of the same reasons. They have to find mates and food and places to rest and water and to disperse to new areas. And with the changing habitats that are happening um, due to climate change and, and temperature change, there's really an added need um, for, these, for fish and wildlife to be able to move and adapt to these changes that are happening on the ground. So we know um, through surveys that are happening that 
um, road stream crossing culverts, for the most part, are barriers, um, and the majority of them in the state are barriers for fish and wildlife movement. And a lot of our uh, wildlife species, um, uh, in addition to fish, move up and down waterways, either along the, sh- bank sh- um, the banks um, or in the stream itself, so otter, mink, turtles. Um, and in large cases, um, you know, even deer are going up and down these stream corridors, even in the stream sometimes, walking right through. So um, we know that this is an important habitat, an impor- important uh, place for animals to move. And so when they can go under a road, either through a culvert or under a bridge, instead of going up and over a road, they're safer and more successful, and people are safer as well. So stream smart road crossings, in addition to protecting infrastructure, um, if they're um, built right, will have banks inside the structure, the actual literal stream banks. And they might be very small if it's a very small structure, or they could be large like a bridge. And that allows animals to go either in the stream um, as they would naturally, or if they're moving up and down the stream bank, they can do that as well. That's great. Um, Jeremy, you've had some, I think, experience actually installing some of these stream smart crossings. Yeah, and I just wanted to build on what Barbara said about the stream smart program, which has been so phenomenal, and uh, how many towns reach out to us as a result of those. And uh, and one example of that is uh, here in Orland on the Happy Town Road, there was a crossing on Wincompog Brook that constantly was blowing out. It was uh, too small of a culvert the big storm would come and it would uh it would erode the ro- it would close the road um and wash away some of the road um gravel there and we recently helped a, a town um with other partners replace it with the stream smart culvert crossing that is resilient to floods and also passes fish really well so it's been a it's been a great example of of how that work is carried out into the field can you explain a little more for our listeners what does a blowout mean sort of the basics i think most of us we all drive a lot every day and we cross streams and we don't really think twice about it and can you just share a little bit of the physics of what happens when too much water goes through a culvert and what is that blowout what does that word kind of mean uh sure the so the a lot of times when you have a pipe that's too small and a large amount of rain starts coming down the stream it overloads that pipe the pipe can't flow as much as the stream wants to and so the you know that flood water will start eating away at the edge of the road and probably people some people have seen this where the little bit of the road gets taken away and sometimes that might result in a short-term closure where the the dpw will have to come and and replace the edge of the road sometimes you can have a catastrophic failure where literally the stream decides to go right through the road and open up a hole in the road and i don't know if people have ever seen the the desert road freeport video which is sort of like uh you know the leviathan culvert coming out of uh coming out of the road and floating away um and and that's a serious event that costs the towns thousands of dollars Um, we will uh we can put a link to that desert road washout video on the web page on main secret for coastal conversations for this show so people can see it and siona are any of your properties or partner land trust properties having these problems um yeah, I don't know of any specifically, but yes, they are. I mean, land, another reason land trusts are involved is that we own a lot of properties around the state, and some of them do have some of these culverts or impoundments um, that we need to work on. So, um, yeah, there are a number of them around, none that 
come to mind as a as an example to give as good as the desert road one <laughs> barbara i wonder if you could from your experience giving these workshops and trainings are people aware of the problem what are what are some of the things that people are taking home from these trainings and and the level of awareness of of the problem yeah i think you know the majority of people um coming to the workshops and they're dealing with roads all the time and so they're very familiar with the um the risks and um the problems and, and we often hear stories of oh yeah we've got a road that overtops or we have to go out regularly to unblock um debris from culverts that are uh, too small um, and are concerned about roads washing out. Um, and in fact, um, I mean, Jeremy is very familiar with this. There's a um, road up in Phillips, Maine, um, and the road commissioner up there um, um, was dealing with because the road is actually failing um, due to, um, you know, these problems. And they, they ended up putting in a stream smart uh, structure um, and and using up their their um, road budget, but knowing they'll never really have to go back and in his lifetime uh, replace that because they can last 75 to 100 years. Um, and so as we you know are having these bigger and bigger and more frequent storms, I know our um, road crews and and um, road works are finding that they're having these more problems more frequently, uh, washouts and um, problems with just. Um, uh, degrading of the of the roads and the structures, so it's a, it's a serious problem and a public safety problem. We have um, Barbara Cherry on the phone from Maine Audubon. We're going to keep Barbara on the line so she can help answer questions when we open up the phone lines to our listeners at at ten thirty in just five minutes. Um, I want to get a little bit technical now because I am wondering how our listeners can get involved in taking care of their local streams, whether it's starting an education program or fixing an actual road crossing or learning about protected properties in their town. And how can people, what resources are out there, how, you know, if you were to give our listeners advice um, about this topic, what might you tell them on how to learn more and, and sort of get engaged, whether it's doing a project on their property or, or just learning about it? Well, um, I would I would ask the listeners to start by going to the um, streamsmartmain.org uh, website, uh, where there are lots of great resources um, to help communities. And um, one thing I really hope um, folks do is share that information um, with their towns or with their friends, um, um, road associations who are having to deal with. Um, you know, maintaining their roads and stream crossings. And um, at that website, we have information about uh, funding sources. We have information about um, sort of the, the whole process that one goes through, um, technical resources um, of folks that can help. Um, if you're, if you're um, a private landowner, then uh, talking to your local soil and water conservation district can be helpful. Um, they may be able to help you. Um, so there are, are resources out there to help both towns and private owners. Um, That's great. Thanks. And I would add um, the Stream Viewer website, um, which is overseen by DMR. It's a long website name, but it's essentially www.maine.gov slash DMR slash searunfish slash streamviewer.htm. Um, that can be useful. And I think... One of the points maybe to make is that if a landowner or a, an observant 
member of the public sees a stream that is a real problem, you don't have to think that you're, you need to take it on alone. <coughs> there are a lot of entities around the state um, trying to um, work on these issues. Um, there are newish funding sources. There are a lot of people who can help guide through processes and who can come together and help you make it happen. So it'll take some initiative and some time, but you're not alone if you're trying to make something happen here. And I think that's a great point. I think a community member who sees a problem, knows a stream is a nice stream for fish, can act as a catalyst in the community to call their town officials and you know raise the concern, tell them they care about this issue, and and uh, through that process can get things started to help re replace a crossing and, and fix a problem. And Ruth, how can people bring some of these education programs into their school? Right. Well, whether it's school or home. Um, so not to throw one more website at folks, but um, islandreadersandwriters.org, all spelled out. Um, so actually, because we've been involved in this project recently, if you go to that, um, our homepage, you'll still see um, uh, to the left on that homepage, um, Rebecca Ray's beautiful illustration. So it'll be a picture of a beaver, I believe, is up there right now with a link. Um, it'll say for educators, but really the worksheets and activities and suggested videos um, are all to are open to the public. So anyone can uh, click on that link. Uh, and I would say there's interesting stuff there both for, you know, from K to... 80 um, for people to sort of just become more aware and of course as we know just getting it onto the consciousness of folks while they're young is going to help them feel more invested and connected. Great. You're listening to WERU Community Radio and Coastal Conversations. Our topic today is stewardship of local streams and we're talking with Ruth Feldman, Program Director with Island Readers and Writers based in Mount Desert. Siona Albrook, Senior Project Manager with Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Jeremy Bell, Aquatic Habitat Restoration Manager with the Nature Conservancy. And Barbara Cherry, a wildlife biologist with Maine Audubon. We welcome calls from, from listeners who have questions or comments or are interested in learning more about anything that our guests have mentioned so far. The number is 1-866-625-9378. Be aware that we do only have one line open, so if you get a busy signal, just keep trying. Um, we're here and we welcome your calls. Um, I wonder, this isn't easy work, and I wonder if you can share some what's hard about it. Um, Jeremy, you mentioned how fun it is, but I think it's also kind of challenging. and. What are some of the, the difficult aspects of this work? I think some of the, uh, the difficult aspects is, uh, you know, Maine has such amazing habitat, but part of that is because it's a really rural state, and so we don't have a huge tax base, and we don't get the, the funding that New Jersey gets, for example, New York and Massachusetts. And so although we have some of the best habitat in the Northeast, we don't have the the funding power to really make the change at a huge scale that I personally would like to see. And so 
um, one of the challenges I, is I feel like I'm, I'm an impatient person with this. I want it to go fast, and it's uh, and sometimes I don't feel like it goes fast enough. But you know, we uh, we continue to raise money and do projects and and get p- positive results on the ground. So I'm hopeful that we can uh, build more resources as far as funding goes. How do you think? What do we need to do to build more resources? I mean, why? Given if we have some of the best habitat. Why don't we have the best funding? <laughs> uh, well, I think we need to get creative about uh, which funding sources we're going for. You know, in the in the past, we would look for uh, strictly fish passage and conservation grants, but recently we've been going after money from FEMA, for example, because when we when we help replace these crossings, we're encouraging the towns to design their their project so that it has 100-year flood capacity instead of the normal culvert might have 10 or 25-year flood capacity. But once you get to that 100-year flood capacity, then you're eligible for FEMA money, and that opens up a whole new world of funding opportunities. And so part of it is creativity. Uh, Tapping into new resources, I think, is a big issue. Okay, we have a call from Dave from Jackson. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. Yeah, I'm, I live in the Marsh Stream watershed in the town of Jackson. I'm wondering if uh, someone could talk a little bit about the uh, town-owned dam, which is uh, right under Route 1A in the town of Frankfurt, which at this point is the barrier to fish passage up into the Marsh Stream. Uh, you're in luck, Dave. I think that Jeremy um, from the Nature Conservancy will be able to speak to that because he's been working with the town. Okay, I'll get off the line. <laughs> sure. Good morning, Dave, and great question. Thanks for asking it. Um, uh, Catherine's right. I'm working with the, the town of Frankfort and with NOAA to take a look at that dam and assess fish passage alternatives there. Um, that dam is... Uh, at least the current iteration of that dam, I think there may have been dams there before, but it was built in the 1800s. Uh, it's, a, it's a stone block dam. It's actually, as far as dams go, it's a beautiful dam. Um, and, uh, uh, but the fishway that's, that's on it is not functioning well as Dave alluded to, and and so what we're doing right now is we're doing all the technical studies to take a look at what could we put there uh, to make that make that fishway work correctly and bring fish up the river because the marsh stream really does have some incredible habitat upstream, uh, great habitat for Atlantic salmon, some of the best brook trout habitat in the state, as well as numerous other sea-run fish species that could use that stream well that are not able to get up there right now. So there's studies going on. What kind of studies? Well, what they do is they they took a look, take a look at the stream profile, how it goes down in elevation as it gets feeds into the Penobscot River. Uh, they took a take a look at the flow and how uh, how would that flow affect any new design for a different type of a fishway. Right now, right now there's something on there called the Deniel fish ladder. So um, that's the sort of the the um, the traditional looking looks like a ladder uh and uh but there are other methods that you can use that are more naturally mimic a natural stream uh whether you take out the dam or not if you leave the dam you can do a what's called a nature-like fishway which is sort of pools uh, made out of rocks that the fish can use to rest then jump up to the next and sequentially get up the stream and so we're taking a look at all of those different options and lots of engineering and and hydrology understanding how water goes through the river to understand what we could do there. Um, so there's a lot of study going on, but will a, 
what what happens next after these studies? Well, then we would have to, well, so the um, the town's required to provide passage for endangered Atlantic salmon, of course, and so that's the probably the number one reason the, uh, to do the study there. Um, and so the town and NOAA would have to come up with a compromise on what type of, uh, what type of fishway um, or fish pass would be on that system. And so then we'd have to figure out how much does it cost, who pays for it, how does it maintain over time so that we make sure that, uh, that the structure has the longest life that it can and we get the most fish uh, up the river as possible. And someone like Dave, our caller, who lives in the watershed, is there a way for him to get involved? Um, it's, it's, uh, if, for someone who doesn't live in the town of Frankfort, um, I'm, I'm not sure you could, um, that maybe the best way would be to talk to Noah and, and let them know that you care about, care about the stream and care about the fishway. Um, you know, I think that the, the public meetings tend to be more town oriented, but I think talking to talking to um, you know the local NOAA chap NOAA office here um, and expressing your concern would be a useful way to go. Great. So it sounds like the town of Frankfurt is working on evaluating fish passage at their dam, which a lot of um, communities are doing. Um, I wonder, Siona, what what do you find that's really challenging? I I want to give our listeners a sense for the process and next steps and. I realize there's kind of no way to go about being a steward of your local stream, but if if we could give them an idea of how the process works, which I think Jeremy just did well for a big dam evaluation, but what about some of these smaller projects? What steps can people take? Yeah, I think Jeremy touched on maybe one of the other uh, frustrations you were asking about early on, which is there's a lot of process to these. Um, You know, water is not owned by one person um, and it stream projects sometimes involve multiple landowners multiple permit needs a lot of funding that needs to be found um, sometimes town votes and processes involved so I think what can be difficult about these projects is the time that they take um, both that it takes a longer time than you would like just as Jeremy alluded to Um, as well as it takes some time and energy um, while it's underway. You really have to keep things moving and keep people engaged and things moving forward. Um, So, which is, again, why there are a number of partners that usually come together on these projects. Um, As to being a stream steward, I think that people, individuals can do a lot. There's some great opportunities around to be stewards in different ways, and being eyes and ears is a really valuable asset um uh and i so you know i hope people can feel like they can play an important role ruth do you think some communities who participated in the island readers and writers program this spring are they going do you see them going on to become greater stewards of their streams and just learning about what fish i think for a lot of people it's a surprise that there's even fish migrating into their streams right well i was thinking about that um you know certainly for the for the kids that's our hope um, and I think that's the reality that we saw. So opening their their eyes to their own 
waterways and fishways and understanding the relevance to their own lives and that they also do have a voice and that they should feel like they can become involved and that they need to be so they understand not only why they should be but a little bit of how they could be in some of the writing workshops it wasn't just writing for the sake of writing they were at you know the older students the older kids practiced you know writing to their selectmen to the governor to um you know to express their interests in their local fishways in their local you know environment around them so seeing that start at a young age hopefully gives us all more promise. And if you'd like to share your voice, we welcome your comments and questions. You can call us at 1-866-625-9378. I'd like to get personal for a little bit and see if you all wouldn't mind sharing a story about your favorite local stream. Anyone? Barbara, do you have a favorite local stream? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you know, right now I am um, blessed to be able to live um, um, for the time being on a, a tidal, tidal stream and, and seeing the changes that happen, um, you know, every day as the tide goes up and down and, and the uh, different wildlife that come through at different seasons, you know, it, it's just so dynamic and streams are, uh, you know, and our waterways are so dynamic and they provide so much um, food and, and um it's so vital to our, the different animals that, that live um, with us. And um, just seeing that every day, I think, is, is such a treasure. And I really um, know how much so many people enjoy, you know, whether it's birds at the bird feeder um, or, you know, seeing the turkeys trying to cross the road or, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, streams are just such a dynamic place. Um, with the water flowing and moving, and there's so much going on inside the stream and in the water. And um, but I'm just, I'm just feeling um, a lot of joy seeing seeing the tides go in and out right now on, on that river. Do you have particular animals or plants that you see often or rarely that are exciting? Well, I love to see the great blue heron, um, and I. Um, you know, love to see a variety of little ducks that come through and, and you know, the fly, flying up um, if they feel a little bit disturbed and, and seeing them sort of fly along and come in, that, that's really fun. And I think um, my uh, favorite thing that happened yesterday, which I just was so much fun, and this was, um, I'm at, I was actually out with a crew. There's a crew of um, uh, seasonal staff that are working with the Nature Conservancy in Maine Audubon to survey the road stream crossings around the state. Um, this summer, as they've been doing for the last, I think, 10 years, and, and uh, that, that information is all available online on a website, uh, Map Viewer, for um, anybody listening. You can go in any culverts that's been surveyed. You can get pictures and information. But while we were out there in a training uh, looking at one of these crossings, there was a water snake um, in this impoundment. And, uh, I, you know, it, it was uh, hunting and, and swimming around. And the next thing we knew, it swam right through the culvert from one side to the other it was real that was really an exciting moment great anyone else want to share your favorite local stream lately uh well i'm a huge fan of the penobscot uh it's not really my local stream as such uh i guess on maybe on a global scale it is uh um but uh this one of the stories that 
hit home to me recently was uh, this past year, for the first time above the VZ and Great Works dams, they saw um, baby sturgeon swimming in those areas where they hadn't had access to in 150 years. And that's just uh, that just has a huge emotional impact on me and I think on a lot of the other people. I also love to see the eagles on the river and the osprey and, and, uh, and uh, you know, the Penobscot is just such an iconic main place uh, that it really, I just love the Penobscot. Have you seen sturgeon in the Penobscot? I haven't myself. Um, I've seen the pictures of them. I've seen a lot of pictures, and, and I have yet to see my first uh, sturgeon live and in person, which is a goal of mine. Well, we're, get, we're getting close to that time of year. I think June is when you'll start to see them moving around and jumping out of the water, so pay attention. Siona, do you have a local stream story? Yeah, I'll tell the story of Patton Stream in Surrey, Surrey where we just had the opening celebration, because right. I think it's a great example of where a number of local people um, can make a real difference. Um, so this is a place where when a highway was redone a few decades ago, there was what's essentially a hanging culvert, so a culvert that was too high up from the stream level for most fish to be able to get up through going upstream. And um, this is a place where, you know, Surrey is, is a former, still probably some fishing village, used to be really important to its economy. Um, and fortunately, people were aware of this issue. Um, so for a number of years, a small group of locals came together and essentially did a bucket brigade to net and bucket fish up the stream past this problem to sort of give life support to a run to keep the fish coming back. Um, then for a few years they tried different sort of homemade fish ladders and you know for since 2008 or so people have been trying to work on this just a small number of people in the town more and more as interest grew um, and got together with town officials who brought in federal and state officials and eventually started the process that Jeremy talked about before with getting engineering in so that you can see the different options that are available and what they might cost, how that would work, um, and eventually had this restored new fishway put in. And um, you know, this year we had over 60 people come and watch the fish start to go up it. Um, they're going to all have to learn how it works now, so I think it's going to take a little time before it's a full run, but it's, it was an example of a small number of people making a big difference. And are the fish, did the fish come back this year? They were back, yeah. And the potential here is great. It's about 1,100 acres of habitat because of the two ponds that this feeds into, um, which is you know somewhere in the 250,000 alewife range that will go into the Gulf of Maine. So really making a big difference, and it's a number, a small number of people on one stream. Jeremy, can you talk a little bit about the, these run sizes and help give us some context? I know the Nature Conservancy has looked at connectivity throughout the whole Northeast, and you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the program that we have such great habitat in Maine. Can you just say a little bit about the habitat that we do have and the potential? Sure, uh, and and another iconic uh, alewife run in the state is uh, on the Damariscotta River and, and into Damariscotta Lake, and that's a great example of a rebounded, uh, rebounded alewife run where they had an old fishway, it was in disrepair, 
fish couldn't get up there. You know, several years ago, the run was under 100,000. Uh, now the, the fishway is repaired and the run's over a million fish annually. And I think uh, their celebration is this weekend. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and that's supposed to be a really fun one. So I'd recommend if people have time to go to it, it'd be fantastic. That's the Damerscotta Mills Fish Ladder Restoration. And there are other examples in the Penobscot this, this summer. We're working with the Penobscot Indian Nation and other partners to replace a fishway on South Branch Lake, which is on tribal land. And that site has a potential of three quarters of a million alewives. Another one, East Branch Lake. Uh, five or six hundred thousand alewives um, just here in Orland. Um, the Alamusic run is close to a million, so we're talking some really big numbers of fish. Really and important. And that's what's actually coming up, or that's the potential for what could come up? That's the potential. Um, I don't know the exact numbers in Alamusic, but Al- the, uh, the Orland River run is uh, one of the biggest potential runs in the entire state. Again, if you'd like to get in a question or a comment, the number is one 625 And I haven't forgotten about Ruth, and I would like you to share your favorite local <coughs> stream story, whatever comes to mind. Um, well, I can now, I think, pronounce correctly the Penamaquan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I personally didn't get to be out there when a lot of the students were. My associate was out there. Um, when Chris Bartlett took them out, but seeing the, their faces and their excitement um, because we timed it right, or Mother Nature timed it right. Um, so after they had done a lot of their writing and artwork and diving deep into projects with teachers, they were out on the river actually seeing the fish, which just sort of culmin- you know, was a great culmination for them. So that was terrific. Um, I know that students also worked real hard um, down in the Machias area. Um, there were some activities on the Orange recently, um, but it is the season, so they've been out there and really able to see, um, you know, a lot of what they've been researching and learning about, which just made it all come that much more alive for them. Um, I wonder, all of you work with very different types of people. Um, K-12 students, in the case of Island Readers and Writers, Barbara Cherry from Maine Audubon works with towns and construction contractors and and people who actually do road and bridge work, Um, (coughs) municipal officials, we have land trusts and land stewards. And I wonder if you can sort of do some group brainstorming about what can these different people learn from each other collectively, this diverse people who are working on local stream issues. What do you think we can learn from each other? Jeremy? Well, I was struck by something that Ruth said uh, earlier when she talked about food webs and, and this this uh, education that you're doing with, uh, with youth. And that's just such an amazing thing because that f- ties right into the Nature Conservancy strategy of uh, part of the reason why we're restoring these sea-run fish is to rebuild this lost part of the food web in the Gulf of Maine and in the ocean. And so it's so neat to hear, I I never met you until today, and here you are, you're working on essentially the same issue from a different angle. And so I'm learning that, uh, how you bring that to the the school kids and how that changes people's paradigms and and essentially is going to make my job easier into the future. So I love that. Yeah. Let's keep working together. (laughs) 
Um, Barbara, do you do you have thoughts on sort of what these different people can learn from each other? Yeah, yeah I think you know I think one of the the great things of bringing different people together um, to to learn about um, this issue and Stream Smart is, you know, we we uh, all get in a room and um, have an opportunity to really to really listen and talk and hear kind of what some of the problems are on the ground. So that we can come together and understand um, and try and find solutions that that um, you know we can address. I mean, we we learned you know we were Maine Audubon was concerned about this issue many years ago, and um, found in talking with um, folks from towns and so forth that you know they really have the same concerns and really have the same um, desire to have good fish habitat. Um, a lot of anglers out there. Um, but came up against the issue of cost. And, you know, building stream smart crossings often, not always, but often cost more up front, though their long-term um, benefits are, um, you know, often more cost-effective in the long run. But coming up with that money up front is difficult for um, budgets in towns that have, you know, short-term short, short um, budgets. Um, so we work together with lots of different partners, the Nature Conservancy, um, and the Association of General Contractors in Maine to um, pass the water bond, that $5.4 million water bond um, was it last year or the year before. And that money uh, is available for towns now. Uh, they can go to, for grants up to $100,000 to assist with um, replacing road stream crossings. And so I think, you know, by listening to each other and identifying what the problems are, you know, it may take time, but we can find solutions. And where can people go to learn more? To learn more about the water bond, they should go to maine.gov to the um, Department of Environmental Protection's website um, for when the grants will be available. And the Stream Smart website again? That is streamsmartmaine.org. Streamsmartmaine.org if you want to learn about what a Stream Smart crossing um, looks like. Um, Sayona, do you have thoughts on kind of what people can learn from each other and also you know where where do you see things going like what's next I'm interested in hearing from all of you as we wrap up just kind of what's next what are your plans for the summer and how do you expect to move forward with this work yeah I'll start with what we can learn and it's something we all learn over and over again when I when we work in groups I think and that is to listen to each other um, with respect, um, fishway or stream, you know, fishway restoration or stream stewardship um, efforts can bring together a diverse set of partners, as we've been saying, you know, transportation entities, um, government officials of, of all scale, um, land trusts, commercial fishermen. Um, those are parties that aren't always used to being in the same room with the same shared goal. Um, but around streams, that's often the case. It's pretty great, and it also means that you need to all work together um, for that same shared goal. And it's a, I think it's a wonderful opportunity of these stream projects. Um, it's special, but it's always that reminder that you need to listen to each other's needs and goals and work together on that. And what's next? What's next? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> um, it's exciting. I think that um, 
and I want to shout out to a number of local land trusts and statewide land trusts, not just ours, but um, I know from Maine Coast Heritage Trust standpoint, um, we are trying to work closely with a lot of the other partners around the table, Lake Nature Conservancy, NOAA, um, the state, et cetera, um, to try and identify some needs. Um, so streams that really uh, need some attention and figure out who the partners are, figure out how to make some of them better. Um, so we can't take it all on. And fortunately, there are a lot of great entities around the state working on this issue, but we're excited to be part of that effort. Ruth, what's next? Uh, well, one of the things, not so much next, but in terms of another resource or a way that people can learn more um, at the adult level, I think I had mentioned um, that we've also partnered with the Skudik Institute. And so the panel that we had um, had representatives from several different organizations doing some really great work. We called that panel Stories from the Stream. So if other folks want to hear that, I don't have an exact website, and it may not be edited quite yet, but um, Skudik puts um, many of their uh, public um, events uh, up on YouTube. And so that was great because it did have a representative, um, Ed Bassett of the um, Pessimaquoddy was there and spoke about the St. Croix and issues along the St. Croix. Uh, Downey Salmon Federation, Dwayne Shaw was there and spoke about a lot of their work, challenges, and great successes, um, as well as, as I said, um, from um, uh, the uh, Natural Resources Council as well. So I would Google or whatever, uh, Skudik, um, as our partner on this big project and learn more about what folks can do and how they can be helpful in their own backyard. Do you think you're going to do another big-themed project <laughs> in the future? Uh, well, definitely big-themed. I don't know if, I, you know, I think we had our run with the Alewives, <laughs> as it were. Um, but, but we, you know, we do always have those worksheets, and we make what we call those text-to-text -text connections. So there are recommendations there for other books and other resources that people could use off of islandreadersandwriters.org. Great. And remember, we'll put links to all of these resources on the Maine Sea Grant Coastal Conversations webpage for this show, which you'll be able to access um, later today. Uh, Jeremy, what's next for the Nature Conservancy? Do you have a busy summer planned? We have a really busy summer. Uh, like Barbara said, we're doing the, uh, the culvert surveys. We also are doing a lot of construction work starting on July 15th. And, uh, and we're hoping to get lots more done in the coming years. Really excited about it. Um, great. We've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about stewardship of local streams. I'd like to thank our guests for their time and good work. Thanks so much for joining us, Ruth Feldman, Siona Ulbrich, Jeremy Bell, and Barbara Cherry. Thanks to Natalie Springle, your regular host for this show, and of course, all the listeners who spent time with us today. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. This is Katherine Schmidt, your host today of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning and a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Support for WERU comes